0: Happy New Year, everybody! Happy new year. Happy new year! Yes! All right, and Minnesota has ushered in the new year by finally acting like Minnesota. Uh, we knew that good run had, uh, had that, that, that Kentucky winter we were having uh, couldn't last forever, so uh, it, has, it has arrived, finally. And we typically give out uh, righteousness points uh, based on how bad the weather is. And so given today, I'd I say it's worth about a seven, wouldn't you say seven righteousness points? So the righteous are here, way to go, glad to have you here, yes. And if you're visiting for the first time, I'm just kidding, we don't really mean anything by that, but I have some kind of kudos to give folks who, who show up in bad weather. Anyways, uh, my name is Greg Boyd, I'm one of the teachers here at Woodland Hills Church, it's good to see all of you. If you're visiting for the first time, we're really glad you're here, if you want to find out more about the church, what we believe, what we stand for, and how we're called the uh, Help work with the kingdom to change the world. Stop by at the hub, out in the gathering area. Tell them you're visiting and we've got a pack of information and a CD that we'd love to share with you. One other announcement I want to make, and that is um, we've been doing this uh, making space campaign to raise $26,000 to uh, make our building a place where uh, homeless folks can stay in the evenings um, and um, uh, to replenish our food shelf. And I mentioned, after two weeks, we had already raised $32,000. After three weeks, we had raised $64,000. And as of now, we've raised $96,000. <laughs> yeah, praise God. That's, that's, that's fantastic. That's fantastic. So, hats off. I, I just love the way uh, the community here responds uh, to the needs of the poor. and. Uh, I'm expecting great things in that area in the future. All that money will be used to minister to, uh, to folks in that area. Uh, in terms of the general thing, we're still in the tank. So just keep that in, 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 in your prayer. But uh, yeah, so praise God for that. The team uh, that, that I speak with and, and talk with about putting messages together, uh, the sermon team felt that before we go back to the book of Colossians, and we will be getting back to the book of Colossians, mind you, but uh, we thought it'd be good, this being the beginning of a new year, to talk about new beginnings. Uh, a lot of people are making New Year's resolutions, uh, and, and so we thought it might be good to have a little Bible teaching around that. I myself am not a fan of New Year's resolutions, because usually they're made sort of willy-nilly, haphazardly. Uh, studies show that over half of them are broken by the end of January, and over 90% are done by the end of the year. And when, when we when we make uh, you know, commitments and resolutions When our heart's not fully in it, what happens is they're most likely not going to succeed. And that kind of trains us for failure. Uh, So I think there should be much more intentionality and prayer that goes into resolutions that we make. Having said that, this being the beginning of a new year, it's a good time for us to reflect on our lives. And what are the areas that we want to change? Because as we're going to see here in a minute, uh, the, the norm for the New Testament is that we're always supposed to be changing. Always supposed to be growing. Always supposed to be pressing on. Never to be complacent, never to be coasting. And so I want us to be asking this question as we uh, do this reflection on this uh, passage of Scripture this morning and prepare our hearts to take communion. Ask this question. As you're going to put yourself in that seat where you are right now, or if you're listening through podcasts, wherever you are right now, fast forward a year from now. And on the first Sunday of next year, as you're listening to a message, What area do you want to have to be different? How will you be different a year from now than you are right now? You might ask the question, without falling into condemnation now, but just to learn, how are you different now than you were a year ago? See, in the kingdom, we're always supposed to be growing. There's always progress to be made. And so let's ask that question as we turn to this passage of Scripture. I'm entitling this message, Press On, because as we'll see here, we're supposed to be always pressing on. God calls us to be pressing on for more change and more growth. But before I read this passage, I want to pray. Will you pray with me here? Father, we thank you for seeing us through another year. We thank you for this last year. Your grace has sustained us. And God, we commit this next year to you. And we're going to trust that your grace will sustain us throughout this next year. We pray, Lord God, that we would be a people, God, who have a fire for you. And God, will you use this message as we sit here in your presence here this morning? Uh, use this message to, to fan the flames of a fire, to create a passion in our heart to pursue you and to grow and to change. Uh, bring a conviction, God, that, that we, keeps us from ever being complacent or ever trying to coast. Be present here. Infuse this word with your power. for all in the auditorium, or listening through podcasts, wherever they are, whatever they're doing, use this message. Make it a game changer, Lord, a game changer. Wake us out of our complacency. In Jesus' name we pray and all of God's people said, amen, amen. Philippians chapter 3, love this passage, just love this passage. we will be reading five verses and I'm going to break it down into several sections and I'll make some comments after each section. It's a little Bible study here. Paul says, to begin, whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss and I consider them lost for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything, everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. Let's pause here for a moment. Paul is speaking about gains, all the gains he now considers lost. The gains are things that he had just mentioned a few verses before this one. Uh, he talks about how he was from the tribe of Benjamin and he was a Pharisee and he was, you know, zealous for the law above his peers, you know, and he was well-educated. He had a lot going for him. He said he could boast about a lot of things if that's what he was into. Those are all the gains. The gains are are anything that the culture would give you kudos for having. So in first century culture, you got kudos if you had the stuff that Paul had. And it was Pharisee, way up there. In our culture, it certainly would be different things for sure. Uh, you know, we, we to generally in our culture, folks consider it a gain if you got a lot of money or it's a gain if, if you've got a real good reputation. If a lot of people know you if you're famous. Uh, it's a gain if, if you're pretty or sexy or it's a gain if you're smart or, or, you know, gain if you are driving a nice car and wearing nice clothes or a celebrity blah, 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 blah. You know what the gains are. Uh, all of that would go into this category. For Paul, it's this righteousness and the law and the Pharisee and all that. For us, it's different things. But Paul says he considers all those gains, everything that the world considers a positive, he considers a negative. Uh, He uses this word zima, zimiya, actually, uh, loss. And it means it means less than having no value. Less than no value. Less than worthless. It's a loss, it's a negative, it's a deficit. All the things that the world thinks is a positive, he sees as a deficit. And and the reason he does, he sees it that way, is because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ. The surpassing worth. The concept is that a worth that surpasses other things. And so Christ, he says, knowing Christ has a worth that so surpasses the worth of all other things that by comparison, all these other things are a negative. They just mean nothing less than nothing. Because of the surpassing worth, of knowing Christ Jesus. The picture I get in my mind is something like this. If you're in a completely dark room without any light, then if you've got a little flashlight, it looks pretty bright. Right? Whoa, 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 what a bright light. But it's only because there's no other light around. In a room of total darkness, a flashlight looks very bright. But you step into the sun, and you can't tell if the light's even on or not. It loses all of its shininess. Why? Because of the surpassing brightness of the sun. See how this works? So also, if a, if a mind has, does not have the light of Christ, a lot of things look bright, shiny, attractive. And so a mind that is devoid of the light of Christ uh, is, is impressed by the light of doing the law in the first century. A Pharisee, oh, a tribe of Benjamin, oh, do a lot of words, oh, sell behind your peers, oh, wow, that's bright. In our culture, we, we look at the riches that someone has, oh, look how bright that is. And the shyness of their car, and the shyness of their sexiness, and the shyness of their, 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 their sports ability, and the shyness of, of their, their, their fame. And oh, look how bright that is. But it's only bright because the world's so dark. You step into the sun, and, and those lights are, are, are completely turned off. You don't even notice them anymore. When you step into the light of Jesus Christ, all that stuff just loses its impressiveness. When you step into the light of Jesus Christ, you're stepping into the daylight. In fact, you're stepping into the sun, S-O-N, and also S-U-N. And if you're standing next to the sun, S-U-N, the source of all light, well, you know what? Your flashlight just isn't going to cut it. No one's going to notice your flashlight. It's worthless. It's, it's, it's Zemia. It's less than nothing. So also when you have the light of Christ... All the glitter and all the pop and circumstance and all the gains of this world begin to look rather silly. They just lose their, their attractiveness, their value. Their, ah, there's nothing. See, it's just this emptiness. And if you find that, in fact, you're still pulled by some of that stuff, you still want the, the flashlight. Party wishes you could get your hands on some of that. I wish I could be famous and have my face on Vanity Fair or Us Magazine or People Magazine or whatever magazines are out there. Well, then it's just a sign that, to that degree, you're not full of the light yet. And I would just encourage you to, to step more into the light. The more you're filled with the light of Jesus Christ, the less that glitter stuff is impressive. It just loses its appeal. It's got nothing going for it. Blah, blah, blah. All right. Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus, all that he used to think was gain is now considered loss. And then he goes on. He says, I consider them, all those gains to be garbage. Why? That I may gain Christ and be found in Him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ or trusting in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Now Paul, remember his gains were the law and and the obedience and how well he kept it. And so he gets rid of that And and the reason he gets rid of it is so that he'll have the righteousness that comes by faith in Christ. Because he he was getting his gain from doing the law. And now he says not just that it's a negative. He ups the ante. He says it's garbage. And garbage is the most polite translation you can have of uh, the Greek word skubalon. Because it literally means Excrement. Uh, something you expel, and it could be applied to garbage because you expel it from your house. Its primary meaning is expelling from something else. <laughs> As garbage, it's excrement. He says rubbish. Not only does he not is he not impressed by that stuff anymore, but but because his particular uh, gain was the law, he is now. He revolted by it, it's disgusting. The idea that you could get right with God uh, and that you could be righteous before God on the basis of your behaviors and obedience to the law—well, that is not only worthless; it's, it stinks. It, it's revolting. It's disgusting. I want to throw it out. I want to run away from it. You see, and the idea of righteousness here, because he wants the righteousness of, that comes by faith and trusting in, in, in Christ. The, the word there means right-relatedness. We sometimes get an idea of righteousness as being sort of prissy holiness. You know, I'm holy, I don't you know, smoke, or I don't do this, whatever. But the concept is, is much more holistic. It, it means right-relatedness. To be righteous means you're rightly related to God and rightly related to others. What Paul is saying here is that you can't get rightly related with God by doing the do's and avoiding the don'ts. You, that can't make you rightly related to God because what sets us apart from God is way more fundamental than our behavior. It goes way deeper than that. So you can't, on the basis of... Of performing the law, even if you do it as good as Paul did, your righteousness is, is as we read in Ezekiel, it says, filthy rags. It it, it amounts to nothing. On the basis of your do's and avoiding the don'ts and your nice behavior, don't ever think you can impress God. Don't ever think you get God to like you more because of of this, that, or the other thing that you're doing or not doing. That's all excrement. Paul is saying here is, is that when you come into the light of Jesus Christ and you begin to know God's grace, you begin to see God's love is for free, then you begin to see that legalism is a load of crap. That's literally what he's saying. Legalism is a load of crap. Be done with it. It stinks. The idea that you can impress God with your little behavior. No, no, no. It's, the only kind of right relatedness we can ever have is given to us by grace. It's given to us by when we put our trust in Jesus Christ. When you come to the point, see, and this is part of the light of Jesus Christ. When you, when you, when you see the light, you begin to understand that, that what sets you apart from God is way more fundamental than, than, than your little behaviors. It's, it's, you're way worse off than that. And as your mind gets enlightened, you begin to see. That if God isn't a God of mercy and a God of love and a God of grace, you haven't got a, you, you haven't got a prayer. You haven't got a hope. No, all, all your right-relatedness comes because of what Jesus Christ did for you on Calvary. And you put your trust in him. You place your confidence in him. And now you have that right-relatedness that comes from God. It comes as a gift. It comes for free. But only, if you're going to get it for free, then you've got to quit that legalism game. You see, he says, I gave up on that in order that I could gain the right-relatedness. Either you get it as a gift or you're trying to earn it. And if you're trying to earn it, it's a load of crap. So get rid of it and receive it as a gift. Amen? Amen. And then moving on. Moving on. He says this. I want to know Christ. You can just hear the feel the passion in this guy. I want to know Christ. Yes, he says. Yes. I want to know Christ. I want to know the power of his resurrection. And I want to know the participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow, somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Hmm. Okay, he so says, I want to know Christ. Now, the concept of knowledge here isn't an intellectual knowledge, because Paul already knew Christ intellectually. In fact, he'd already put his faith in Christ, his trust in Christ. So he yelled all that down. But when Paul says, I want to know Christ, He's using a, a biblical concept of know, which, which means to know something intimately, or to know it experientially, or to know it from the inside. To know somebody, in a biblical sense. People often think that it just refers to sexual intercourse, but it has a broader application. You know, the Bible says that the husband knew his wife. Well, it applies to that as well, but it, but it applies outside of that. To know someone is to get on the inside of their life. To know someone intimately. And so Paul is saying, I want to know Christ, not just intellectually, but I want to know him from the inside. I, I want to experience intimately Jesus Christ. And then he says, I want to experience intimately. I want to get on the inside of the power of the resurrection. I want to know from the inside that resurrected life. Now, I want to know from the inside God's life coming into ours and that eternal life that we can now have and that source of all joy and the source of all peace and the source of all power. I want to know it. Yes, I want to know it intimately, experientially from the inside at this point, we're probably all thinking, yes, we want to know that too. Yes. But then Paul says, and I want to know intimately, part, I want to participate in his sufferings and become like him in his death. And at that point, we're probably thinking, not so much. <laughs> uh, you know, we're not so excited about that one. Uh, when Paul talks about the sufferings of Christ, what he's getting at, there's not just He's not saying, oh, I wish I had more aches and pains. <laughs> I'm not, yeah, I wish I had a broken back or couldn't walk. You know, not, the, the sufferings of Christ aren't the, the aches and the pains and even the tragedies that we sometimes experience in this fallen world. Everybody has that. In a fallen war zone, we, we, we suffer in different ways. But that's the suffering of the fallen human race. The sufferings of Christ are the sufferings that are unique to a kingdom person. They're the sufferings that we enter into because... We're walking down a kingdom path. We're following in the ways of Jesus. There's sufferings that we could avoid if we weren't a kingdom person. Sufferings that we could opt out of. Now, the sufferings that just come as a part of humanity and part of life, you don't choose those. They happen to you. Or maybe you make choices that lead to them, but, but you can't just opt out of them. Whereas these sufferings, the sufferings of Christ participating in his death, this is the kind of suffering that we go through Because we are following in his way. We're followers of Jesus. And Paul is saying here, I want to know them. I want to experience them. And and, and he says it so that I may attain to the resurrection. Now, we might hear that as a sort of teaching works. like You want to suffer so that you can attain the resurrection. It sounds like you're saying, some might think, that if I go through this the, the suffering, well, this is sort of the prerequisite to, to getting the resurrection. Like, i gotta earn, I got to earn the resurrection by suffering. I'm paying for the resurrection by suffering. I'm going to merit the, the resurrection by suffering. But he can't possibly mean that, can he? Because he just said that legalism is a load of crap. You can't work your way into the kingdom. What's he getting at here? We, I think, might hear this teaching as teaching sort of works or suggesting works. Because we're messed up with our idea of grace. We might think this teaching goes against the concept of grace. But that's only because we in Western culture, Western Christianity, tend to have a rather screwed up idea of grace. I say this quite a bit uh, because I think it's so fundamental. But we in Western culture have a long tradition, of uh, in, in, in Western Protestantism anyways... Where we frame everything theologically in a court of law context in terms of legal rules. And so, the main paradigm we work with as we're thinking things through theologically is we see God as the judge, and we're the defendant on trial, and Jesus is our lawyer, and salvation is acquittal. And grace is the attitude of the judge that gets us acquitted. That's how we tend to view things. and, and we see the atonement that way, you know, Jesus cuts the deal with the judge, and, and, and everything gets construed that way. Now, if that's our paradigm, then we instinctively hear a teaching like this as sort of violating grace, or at least compromising grace. The way we might hear that is this. Uh, the judge says, okay, you're acquitted, because that's what salvation is, right? But if you want to, if you want to be acquitted, you have to suffer. Or it might be like a judge saying, okay, you know, defendant, I will, I will waive your prison sentence, but you have to do 40 hours of community service. And we still might call it grace, but it seems like it would be more graceful if he didn't give us the community service. You see, so we might hear teaching like this is compromising grace. But that's only because we frame things in a court of law context. We will do much better in thinking through things theologically in a New Testament perspective if we, instead of framing things in a, in a legal context, frame everything in a marriage context. Frame everything in a covenantal concept, context. Because everything in the New Testament, in fact the entire Bible, is written with that kind of frame of mind. It's a covenantal uh, book. It's, it's all about covenant. And so if you frame... Uh, salvation and and, uh, our relationship with God in a marriage context, well, then God isn't our judge. He's our spouse. And what salvation is, is it's it's not just an invitation. It's not just forgiveness and an invitation to be married, though it is that. But beyond that, what salvation is, is it's participating in the marriage. What salvation is, is learning how to be a a fit spouse to the king of kings, and the Lord of Lords, what salvation is, is learning how to enter into the joy of being married to Jesus Christ and the power of being married to Jesus Christ and the peace that comes from being married to Jesus Christ. What it means to be saved is you're, you're in this marriage and and that and therefore we are, as it says in First Peter, we're participating in the love that is God, we're participating in the divine nature. We're, as I like to say, and a lot of church fathers spoke this way, they see God, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit as sort of this, this beautiful, loving dance that goes on throughout eternity. And we're invited to join in that dance. And so being married to Jesus Christ makes us one of the dance partners. And so salvation is about learning how to dance with God, learning how to live with God, learning how to enter into the joy and the peace and the power of God. And we do that as this bride who's becoming increasingly radiant, the fit bride for the King of kings and the Lord of lords. That's what salvation is. And, and, and so when Paul is saying here about the suffering that, that, that we go through, it's not about earning anything or about, about meriting anything. It's about going in a direction that makes us that fit spouse for the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Uh, we have a role to play in this. It's all by God's grace, right? I said several weeks ago that, that we couldn't say yes to this marriage invitation if it wasn't for God's grace. We wouldn't say yes to God's invitation to be saved if it wasn't for God's grace. It's God's grace that empowers us to say yes Uh, to the invitation. It's God's grace that empowers us to begin to learn how to be the spouse that's a fit spouse for the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. It's God's grace that empowers us to learn how to enter into the life of God and the joy of God and the peace of God. It's all by God's grace. 100% by God's grace. Left to ourselves, we wouldn't even be interested in this. It's all by God's grace. But there is a role that we play. And the role we play is God's not a coercive God. He's he's, He's not a puppeteer God. So Here's the, the role we play is this. God's grace transforms us and enables us to be able to say yes. But God doesn't make us say yes. He won't coerce us to say yes. He empowers us to have that choice. But there's still a choice we make. And it's a choice we make when we enter into salvation, but it's a choice we make as we're in the process of salvation because it is a process. And the choices we make are very important because they set us down a road, a trajectory which either leads to increasing transformation or not. And our job then is to yield to the power of the Spirit working in our life, the grace of God working in our life, to yield, to go down the road that leads to this culminating point where we become the dance partners of of God, the, the bride that's radiant and fit to be married to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Paul says here that he wants to suffer with Christ, get on the inside of Christ's suffering, so that he could attain the resurrection. The word there in Greek is kata anau. And it doesn't mean merit or achieve or earn. He's not saying I'm going to suffer so that I can earn, earn the resurrection. He's saying I'm going to suffer so I may attain it. And that word attain simply means to arrive at, to arrive at a destination point. So he's saying by the choices that we make, yes or no to God, and we do this every day of our life, the choices we make set us down a course, a road That leads in one direction or the other. And if you want to enter into the power of the resurrection, learn how to become a a person who who knows on the inside that powerful resurrection that transforms us to be this radiant bride, the road there is a road that involves self-denial, and therefore it involves suffering. It involves going the way of Jesus. To say yes to God, then, is to say yes to that road. To say yes to the power of the resurrection is to say yes to the road that leads to the power of the resurrection. To say yes to God means you're saying yes to the Jesus' way of living. You're saying that I'm going to go down the road where I learn how to deny myself. I learn how to die that I may live. I learn how to put my own self-interest aside. I learn how not to use my own advantages just for myself, but to use it for the advantages of others. I learn how to love like Jesus and serve like Jesus and, 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 and forgive like Jesus. We're going down that road. To say yes to God is to say yes to that. That's what it means. You're heading down that trajectory. And the culminating point of this whole thing, what Paul wants to attain, he says, is the resurrection. And he's referring there to this end of world history, the end of this probationary epoch that we're in right now. It will come to an end. Maybe it will be this year. Who knows? Hallelujah. Uh, but it will come to an end, and then our, the, the, our bodies will be raised from the dead, and the kingdom's going to come in fullness, and God's going to set up, uh, you know, correct, correct everything that's wrong in creation, and, and his, then his kingdom will reign forever and ever, and we shall reign with him. And when that time comes, when this culminating point comes, when we attain, when we arrive at that spot, well then, everything about us that is inconsistent with the character of God is going to be burned away all of our sin will be burned away all of our pride is going to be burned away all of our hatred and strife is going to be burned away our bondage to lust praise God is going to be burned away all the addictions that oppress us are going to be burned away our self-centeredness is going to be burned away our living is going to be burned away our mind is going to be burned away our racism is going to be burned away all of our power struggles are going to be burned away be burned away and then what will be left is just what reflects the character of God what is what puts God's love unambiguously on display. Then we will be the radiant bride that is fit to be the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Then we will be perfected. All the, all the dross will be burned up. And what's left will be the radiant bride of Christ. But Paul says, okay, that's the culminating point that the road takes us to. But Paul says he's not there yet. He's not there yet. And this brings us to the, I mean, to the main message I want us to be thinking about here. Uh, the, the last passage that we're going to read this morning says this. Not that I have already obtained this, Paul says, or uh, that I'm already perfect, but I press on, I press on to make it my own, to make it my own, because Jesus Christ has made me his own. I love that. I press on to make it my own, all that, the resurrection power creates my own, because he has made me his own. Now, this, this term be, to me, made perfect. Um, it, 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 it's, uh, the word is telea'o. And uh, it means to be complete. Uh, it, it, the root of the word is telos. And um, uh, it, it has a connotation of a direction or a goal or an aim. Telos. And and so uh, telea'o means to have completed that process. To have arrived. And so Paul is saying that to be made perfect is to have gone down this road all the way. To finally have arrived at uh, the place that he was always aiming at, which is the kingdom, the resurrection, the radiant bride of Christ, the married supper of the Lamb. He, I'm not there yet, Paul says, and therefore I press on. Uh, the word here is dioko in Greek, and and it, it means to run after, to pursue, to press in on something. It has a connotation of of earnestness and urgency to press on. He's saying, I press on. I Paul earnestly wants to make the resurrection power of Christ his own. He earnestly wants to make the undying life of God, the eternal life of God, his own. He wants the righteousness of Christ to characterize his life uh, now. He wants to make that his own. But he's not trying to earn it. He's not trying to merit it. He's not trying to achieve it. In fact, he says that the reason he's trying to make the righteousness of Christ his own, to characterize his own life, and he wants to make the resurrection power of Christ his own. The reason he's doing that is because Christ has already made him his own. He's pursuing God because Christ has already pursued him. See, far from this being a matter of, of achievement or works, Paul is saying that what motivates him to strive towards Christ is that he's already owned by Christ. What motivates him to strive for the righteousness to make that his own is that he's already been made righteous by Christ. This is just a a profound truth at the center of of, of kingdom life that we need to internalize. Uh, And it reframes everything, if we get it down right. Everything we do toward God is a reflection of what God has already done towards us. Everything. If you're pursuing God, it's because God has already pursued you. If you love God, it's because God first loved you. Everything we do towards God is a reflection of the grace he's already given to us. Uh, he, that that, that, that he, He's holding us in his hands. If we're reaching out to God, that's not because we're righteous. No, it's because God's already reached out to us. In fact, he's holding us in this this, this embrace. I get this picture when I, when I read this passage. of uh, uh, Paul saying, I, I, wanna, I want everything about him to, to be mine because everything about me is already his. I get this picture of, of like a... Uh, I see myself being held by Jesus. I mean, I'm this little kid. And and as I was as a little kid, I'm real rebellious. So he's he's holding me because he loves me. He's got this bear hug around me. He's just pulling me towards himself. But I'm going, no, no, I want to go my own way. I want to do my own thing. I want to be Lord of my own life. I like like to have my life apart from you. So I'm struggling against him. and He's pulling me towards himself. But see, he's a little bit stronger than me. (laughs) And, And so as he's pulling me, what happens is, I start to buckle under and gradually I, my resistance breaks down. And as he pulls me in his love, my heart begins to melt. And as he pulls me in his love, I begin to have an affection towards him. And as he pulls me to, in his love, the light of Christ begins to go on. And I stop seeing the things of the world as having this attraction. And I stop wanting them so much. And as he pulls me tightly in his love, I begin to want to pursue him and chase after him. And, and, and see, then I'm pursuing him and I'm pressing on and I want more Christ-likeness and I want to look more like Jesus. But the only reason I'm doing it is because he's had me in a bear hug all along. And the fact that I'm, I'm going after him is, is, is just evidence of the fact that he's already gone after me and he already owns me. Everything, every inch of progress we make in, in our, our walk with God, we've got to say yes to it, but it's all a function of God's grace pulling us towards himself. If you have a little more light now than you did before, it's because God's been holding you all along. If you're getting a little bit more free of your pride than you used to be, that, well, that's because God's, God, Jesus Christ has got a hold on you. If, if, if you're getting free of some of the bondages you've had in your life, that's because Jesus Christ has a hold on you. If you're learning how to love your spouse a little better than you did before and love your kids a little better than you did before, it's because Jesus Christ has this loving hold on you. If you're learning how to serve a little bit more and love your enemies a little bit better and forgive a little quicker, it's because Jesus Christ has got a bear hug around you and he's pulling you to himself. No, we don't earn nothing. We don't achieve nothing. It's all by his grace. It's all by his grace. All by his grace. But, folks, we do have to say yes. Uh, what we do, we don't do to try to earn anything. We're not trying to, we don't do stuff to get heaven. No, we do stuff because he's already given us heaven. And we don't do stuff to try to, to get righteous. We, we do it because he's already made us righteous. But that puts in us a hunger to now actually make the righteousness characterize our life, to make it our own here and now. And the final thing I want us to reflect on is, is just as is we prepare for communion. Paul has is, is got this passion to press on and grow, go further down the road towards completeness. And realize that he's writing this in prison. He, he, he's, he's in prison when he's writing this thing. In fact, it's, it's curious. This is it's wonderful. The letter uh, to the Philippians is, I think, the most joyous letter in the entire New Testament. And Paul is writing it in prison, facing possible execution. And this guy is just as happy as could be. But what really impresses me here this morning is that he's in prison. He doesn't know how long he's got to live. Maybe tonight's going to be his last night. This might be the last letter he's going to write. This could be the last sentence he's going to write. And what's on his mind? I want to press on I, I, I'm not complete yet. No, I'm not complete, so i got to grow. Here he is in prison. He's telling us he's not complete, but he wants to be complete, so he's going to press in on this. Here he is in prison saying, I want to be more like Christ. I want to love more like Christ. I want to look more like Christ. Here he is in prison saying, i got to press on. i got to grow in my spiritual maturity. i got to press on and manifest more of the kingdom. Right here in prison, facing possible execution. He's saying, I want to be the radiant bride uh, who is fit to be married to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. I want to press on. He's got a passion and urgency about this could be with his last breath. And so I'm thinking if Paul at the end of his life, the Apostle Paul, whom God used to inspire so many letters in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul who planted all these churches and was the hero of the faith, if he at the end of his life was saying, I'm not complete yet, i got to press on. I'm thinking, it's probably a rather safe bet that most people hearing this message or the one giving this message Uh, are probably not yet there either. We've got more growth that needs to happen. We've got more to press in on, more that needs to change. And so if Paul had no space in his life to become complacent and to coast and to say, good enough, if he had no place for that, then folks, I submit to you, we have no place for this. See, God is always pulling us. And if we're yielding to that, then we will be, always be pursuing him. Seek first the kingdom of God. And so I want us to think about this as, a, as the worship team comes up here and we prepare uh, to enter into the second time of worship. As, 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 as we, we prepare for this, think about this. Number one, are you willing to press on? Because, let's be honest, a part of us, our fallen nature, we like complacency. We, we, that's why this acquittal model, this legal model of salvation It kind of fits. We like it because if you're just acquitted, if that's all that matters, you can just be acquitted couch potato waiting to die and go to heaven, which is where a lot of people are at. No, 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 no. This salvation thing is about being a dance partner, a marriage partner with Jesus Christ. So do you want to press on and be honest about it? And if really you don't, because there's a part of me that doesn't. I like my complacent life. I'm comfortable. Good enough. Part of me wants to say, good enough. But if you find that you don't really want to, then be honest about that. But see, don't try to crank that out. I'm going to want I'm going to, want, I ought to should. I ought to better. Because that's going to loop you into this doing stuff. Rather, realize that Jesus Christ is pulling you. And so just submit your heart. And just say, Lord, I don't want, but I want to want. Uh, Lord, it just change my heart. That's the first step, always, to just bend your heart and become humble and say, Lord, I'm such a sinner that I, I don't wanna, want, but I want to want. So will you change my heart. And then let him pull you and feel that pull. And then as we feel the pull, that loving hug, that bear hug around us this morning, as we feel that, let the Holy Spirit put in your mind one thing. There may be others later on, but right now, one thing that he wants you to press in on this year. Because we've all got at least one thing. And, and let the Holy Spirit that put that in your mind and put that in your heart. And that is where you, you, you say with the Lord that I in the power of your grace will change. So a year from now, that won't be here or that will be here, whatever the case may be, whatever it is that God wants you to work on. All right? Let's bend our hearts to Jesus. Let him pull us. Let him put on our hearts what it is that we're supposed to change. Don't let your flesh, carnal, petty brain talk you out of it. Like, oh, I couldn't possibly do that. This isn't about you or your power. It's about learning how to rely on his power. So if he puts it in your mind, you can do it. Not on your own, but through the power of his grace working in your life. That bear hug, he's stronger than you are. He's stronger. He's going to pull you. He's going to pull you big if you'll let him. So I, I, we'll start by taking up an offering, and then I'll come up afterwards and, and, and set the stage for uh, our, our taking communion. When the ushers come forward, as we pray, Father, we submit all we have to you because it all comes from you and it all belongs to you. And part of the road you call us to travel down is a road of, of, of even financial suffering sometimes. Not just because of a bad economy, but because we're living with outrageous generosity. So lead us and guide us. Uh, uh, to Steward your resources the way you want, and we just submit the, 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 the ministry to you and the needs of the ministry, and trust that you'll be working in people's hearts to meet those needs. It's all belong, it all belongs to you because it's all about you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So we're going to go in and enter into a time of communion here, worship and communion. I encourage you to throughout this time be, have your mind solely focused on Jesus. Imagine in your mind the things we're singing about and the one we're singing to and offer it all up to him. Along the sides of the auditorium, we have tables with the cup and the, and the bread. And uh, when you feel ready, uh, just get up and go and take uh, the communion. If you want to do it with uh, family or friends who are with you, then do it as a group. We, we encourage that. We at Woodland Hills have what they call open communion, which is simply that um, we don't screen anybody. Uh, We invite everybody to come and participate in this, uh, if you want. Uh, Jesus didn't give a theological litmus test on the Last Supper, and Judas was there. And so we don't believe in giving a theological litmus test. Join us in in taking communion. Um, This is a sign of the covenant. Whenever God gave a covenant in the Old Testament and, and, and in the New Testament, he gave a sign to remember it. And so the night which he was betrayed, that last supper, he took the bread and he broke it in front of them. And he said, this bread is my body, which is to be broken for you. And so whenever you come together and eat this bread, do it in remembrance of me. Remember the broken body. And then he took the cup and he said, this cup is the cup of the new and everlasting covenant because this cup is my blood that's shed for you. So whenever you take the cup and drink of it, uh, do it in remembrance of me blood that was shared, shed for us. And so we remember the sacrifice he made. God becoming a human being, dying on the cross. He did this so that we could be invited into this marriage covenant with him. It's a marriage. And so that's his pledge to us. But it's also a covenant involves another party, and that's us. And so this is where we, as we remember the covenant, we remember our pledge to make him Lord, which means our pledge is to walk down that road of suffering. Our pledge is to keep pressing on. And so as we take this cup, remember the love, the sacrifice, the love that's pulling you every step of the way. But also keep in mind that one thing that the Holy Spirit maybe is putting on your mind to change this year, to press in on this year, and offer that up to him. He died for us. Our job is to die to ourselves for him. So Holy Spirit, come invade this time. Uh, Flood us with your Holy Spirit. God, just, just do things here. Do things here. Heal people here. Restore people here. Set a fire in our hearts here. Just, just fall on us, Lord God. Fall on us. In Jesus' name. Amen. Praise Him. Praise Him. Amen. Praise Him. Praise Him. To sing us through this last year, for heading us into this new year, for His grace always surrounding us, for always pulling us, pouring His Spirit on us, we praise Him. We praise Him. We praise Him. We praise God. praise God. We praise God appreciate all you folks I feel like God's presence here if you don't want to leave don't feel like you have to leave uh, the prayer team is going to be up here if you want to come forward can you guys just play for a little more just sort of vamp that I just feel like God's presence is really here in a beautiful way so if you want to stay and hover stay and hover otherwise I, I, I encourage us as we leave this place to do it with a commitment to press in to press on to press forward uh, wherever we're at in our walk we've got more room to go more, more, more things that need to be done, and he wants a bride who's radiant and who's washed, clean, and blameless. And so, let us love pull you this this year. Make a commitment to pull you in the one area or two areas that he put on your mind. Let him, you. let him pull you. Let him pull you. Keep growing. Never stop. Never get complacent. Let the fire burn. Let the fire burn. And go out and share it with the world in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.